We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Will Hall. I'm your host here on Madness Radio. Thanks for joining us. I'm really excited today because our guest is John Horgan, who is a science journalist. He was a former senior writer at Scientific American and um, writes frequently for um, Discover Magazine, uh, New York Times, Times Literary Supplement. And uh, he uh, writes a lot about neuroscience and genetics and this whole question of uh, what are the limits of scientific knowledge. Uh, first, just a few things about uh, Madness Radio. We're sponsored by the Freedom Center and by the Icarus Project. Freedom Center is a local support, activism, and advocacy group run by and for people who have different mental disorder labels like schizophrenia or bipolar or depression and who are looking for alternative ways of understanding what we go through. And we have a lot of different holistic um, services that we offer, including free acupuncture, uh, free yoga. We have a support group. Um, There are events coming up. We have a protest coming up on um, July 29th. And um, you can find out more information about the Freedom Center and what we're up to by going to freedom-center.org. Madness Radio is also co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, which is a mostly internet-based group, but also there are local groups uh, around the country of people who have different mental disorder diagnoses like bipolar and other um, related um, labels and who are looking for um, other ways of understanding uh, what we go through beyond the medical model, especially creativity and spirituality. You can check out um, the website for the Icarus Project, which is theicarusproject.net. Uh, so I was really blown away by John's um, John Horgan's books, uh, "The Undiscovered Mind: How the Human Bo- How the Human Brain Defies Replication, Medication, and Explanation," and um, his book "Rational Mysticism." And uh, John is just a very, very sharp, skeptical, brilliant um, thinker who takes science seriously, um, but he looks very deep into what it claims and what it really can't claim despite what it wants to claim. And he's been um, someone who's uh, criticized the excitement about antidepressant drugs. He's been very critical of genetics and um, neuroscience, but in a very sophisticated uh, way that comes from really understanding the ins and outs of, um, of what actually scientific research is all about. So John, thanks a lot for joining us today. Sure, it's a pleasure to be here, Will. Well, I really enjoyed your book, um, The Undiscovered Mind, and also um, your book, uh, Rational Mysticism, was really um, amazing to me. I love how you bring a real skeptic's um, attitude with a scientist's precision to this question of, like, what does science know and what does science um, not know? Yeah, well, uh, both of those books were really, in a sense, follow-up books to my uh, my first book, which is called The End of Science. That came out in uh, 96, and uh, as the title suggests, in, uh, in The End of Science, I uh, tried to argue that um, all the really great discoveries are behind us in science. The big paradigmatic discoveries like quantum mechanics and evolution and DNA and the, the Big Bang. So obviously there's a lot left to learn about how the universe works, but um, 
mostly it will consist of uh, filling in the details of the big picture that we already have. Uh, now, the big exception to that, as many critics uh, pointed out in uh, reviews of the end of science, is um, the study of the brain and mind. And so in Undiscovered Mind, I, I, I talked about neuroscience and psychology and so forth in uh, the end of science, but um, I didn't really give them um, as much attention as they deserve, considering how tremendously important they are. So uh, in Undiscovered Mind and then in, in Rational Mysticism, I really focused on what science can tell us about um, ourselves or about what it can't tell us, what the limits of, of science are. Well, let's maybe get started with um, with neuroscience then, because I, I mean I, we've got this um, real belief in medication as being uh, sort of the, the way to unlock uh, mental states and help people who are having mental distress or mental illness. And you really point out the uh, the limits of that. And, you, and I think what's interesting is that you have a, a chapter talking about the way in which um, psychotherapy and especially even Freudian psychotherapy therapy is still around because no one's really been able to kind of prove anything is much better. They all sort of end up being equally good or equally not so good. Um, so yeah, tell us, the, you tell know, the original that, yeah. title... Um, of Undiscovered Mind when I uh, first came up with the idea for this book and uh, started pitching it to publishers was Why Freud Isn't Dead. And uh, what I meant by that was that um, you know, Freudian theories were uh, first proposed about a hundred years ago and uh, they became uh, enormously successful, especially in the United States within the next few decades, but they've been attacked viciously since the very beginning. Uh, psychoanalysis has been attacked both as a theory of the mind and human behavior and as a treatment for all of our disorders. And you constantly have uh, these proclamations coming out uh, that uh, Freud is dead. Modern science has finally shown that, that uh, Freudian theories uh, uh, don't work either as theories or as therapies for the mind. Um, but obviously, if Freud was really dead, we wouldn't have to keep announcing that he's dead. Freudian theories are still as viable as uh, any other theories of the mind. There has been, in spite of all the progress of modern neuroscience and genetics and all these other fields that attempt to explain human behavior, uh, there hasn't been a theory that's been powerful enough to displace Freud once and for all. Uh, and that works both at the theoretical level and the therapeutic level. So say more about that. I mean, how, how, how can that be? It's, it's, we tend to think of science as constantly marching forward, and Freud is sort of a Victorian theory. And don't we have these sort of neuroscientific, um, the neurotransmitter theories and serotonin and dopamine and all these sort of brain chemistry theories now? Don't those really prove to be um, superior in the end? Well, you know, it's... it's um, it's sort of this strange paradox. So you obviously have this flood of data coming in from uh, neuroscientific research. We've got all these really powerful instruments for understanding the brain. Uh, we've uncovered all these neurotransmitters uh, in the brain, all these different genes that regulate the development of the brain. Uh, we've developed all these uh, drugs that supposedly can uh, ameliorate the effects of uh, mental illness and and there are all these theories of how 
depression and manic depression and schizophrenia stem from disorders of of uh, neurotransmitters. But what neuroscience still hasn't given us is what you might call a unified theory of the brain or mind. And in fact, at this point, there is such a tremendous confusion of findings coming from uh, neuroscience and genetics that it's almost impossible to imagine how somebody could come up with a unified theory. In a way, uh, the the reason that Freud could uh, successfully propose a unified theory of, of the mind and behavior 100 years ago was because there was so little real, hard, empirical data to contradict him. Nowadays, if somebody wants to propose a theory like this, you have to account for this tremendous variety of often contradictory findings about how the brain works. So you have a, a kind of... Um, almost like an anti-progress. The more that scientists study the brain uh, and mind, the more confused they become about how they work. I think that really that really shows to be true when you just um, follow the media. It seems like every, every day almost there's some finding from some research somewhere saying, ah, oh, we've discovered that this gene plays a role in bipolar or this uh, neurochemistry um, serotonin or neurotransmitter is behind some mental disorder, and then there's something totally different that comes out uh, the following the following week. Well, you know, and this is especially true of um, uh, psychopharmacology. So I have an, a uh, a chapter in uh, Undiscovered Mind called Prozac and Other Placebos, and in that I show that um, uh, you know there's there's been there have been these claims of tremendous progress in. Uh, treating uh, very common disorders like, um, like depression. And, and Prozac and the whole class of SSRIs were supposed to uh, represent this great step forward in treating depression. But what the clinical trials actually show, and this is what I pointed out in Undiscovered Mind, is that um, SSRIs are really no more effective at treating uh, depression than the older class of antidepressants, the uh, tricyclics. And uh, all these drugs um, as a whole aren't really any more effective at treating depression and other common disorders than uh, plain old psychotherapy, including psychoanalysis. So you you have this impression of progress that's actually uh, not in accord with with what the uh, the clinical data show. Uh, you know, I, actually, I, it made me uncomfortable to be pointing out some of these things um, when I was working on uh, uh, Undiscovered Mind. And that was sort of the the most um, controversial and uh, and I thought attention-getting uh, material that I was working with. This critique of of uh, especially of of antidepressants because I have lots of friends who are taking antidepressants and have sworn that they have made a tremendous difference in their lives. And oh, absolutely. I, I yeah, don't, I, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, have, I, have the same, I, I have the same experience in my life. Many people I come across um, swear by as antidepressants and SRIs as, as lifesavers, and of course they work. And, and yeah, that's so right. I, I, yeah. It's just that, it's just that you know, and this, was a, uh, this is a theme of the book um, Listening to Prozac, which is a big bestseller back in the uh, early 90s and really helped to sort of create this wave of enthusiasm for um, for 
Prozac and other antidepressants. But if you just look, you know, again, as a science writer, I just have to go, keep going back to what the data actually tell us. And, um, you know, the data to say that, that these drugs really, uh, as I said before, they aren't this great step forward. And you have to remember that a lot of people still swear by psychoanalysis or yeah. they swear by uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or they swear by, you know, there's so many different things that people claim um, make them uh, feel better. Yeah, they're that's... trying to struggle with one another of... Uh, these uh, disorders. Yeah, that was one of the main, because I work with the Freedom Center, and we're a support um, group as well as activism and education, and that was one of the things we really have emphasized is that, look, it's up to the individual to decide for themselves what they feel works for them, um, and it's kind of really can't argue with that in, in a sense, and I, I think um, one of the things that's important for listeners to recognize that is that your book, The Undiscovered Mind, when you're making these points, uh, came out in 1999. And we've seen in the last seven years, everything that you've just said has been absolutely borne out to be true in the mainstream media. These studies have consistently come out challenging kind of the initial um, hype and enthusiasm around the new class of, of drugs. So um, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the on the show, because I think you're, you're really looking very deeply and very accurately at these issues. Now, John, you, you mentioned the placebo effect. That, that, I just yeah. thank you for saying that, yeah. Will, because I was absolutely hammered oh, when yeah. I discovered yeah. mine came out, because uh, I, you know, because I, I was ahead of the curve on this, and, uh, you know, there, I had a, there was a reviewer in the New York Times who said, uh, you know, just said that my claim that SSRIs weren't any more effective than previous drugs was just absolutely absurd. And it was contradicted by books like Listening to Prozac. So, well, thank you for pointing out that, uh, that now what I'm saying is, is almost received wisdom. Well, it's, it's, it's important to remember that, you know, the mainstream media often is just completely trapped in a very narrow way of looking at things. I, I think that there's some historical record that when um, the Wright brother, well, the Wright brothers actually flew at Kitty Hawk, the media, the New York Times was completely unwilling to look at the facts of the people they had actually, um, they had actually flown. And um, I'm also reminded of a review of, um, I had Richard de Grandpre, who uh, is author of, of listening, uh, his author, author of Riddle and Nation. I had him on the show a few weeks ago. And his book was reviewed by Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell is one of the most preeminent science writers probably in the world he's a new yorker writer and certainly, he, he's certainly the best-selling absolutely the very yeah that's that's true he may not have quite the reputation in in the science world but he's certainly one of the most popular and um, very well respected new yorker writer and in his review he referred to ritalin as not being addictive <laughs> and i was just kind of shocked by this that that and but actually that was at one point in the introduction of, of, of Ritalin and the promotion of ADHD, it was kind of commonly believed that, oh, well, these drugs aren't addictive. And now it's, of course, received wisdom that, well, actually, Ritalin is a stimulant and it's addictive. So I think it's important for us to be, as you are, um, skeptical. Um, I, you, know, I, 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 you had brought up the issue of the placebo effect. And maybe tell us a little bit more about how you would define that and how actually powerful it is, because I think that's one of the most amazing stories about the mind and science and what helps people and what doesn't help is really this question of the placebo effect. Yeah, the placebo effect is um, is fascinating. It's it's right at the heart of this whole, you know, this ancient uh, uh, riddle, the mind 
the mind-body uh, riddle. Uh, how does the mind influence the body and, uh, and vice versa, and should we really think of them as two different things? Uh, so the, the placebo effect has always been sort of dismissed by physicians as uh, uh, the result of uh, wishful thinking, this kind of uh, very ephemeral psychological effect that, that, you know, if you believe something is going to help you get better, then uh, you also might have some kind of um, passing uh, feeling of good health. But uh, modern research has shown that it is a very concrete, real phenomenon. Uh, so, for example, um, in, when it comes to, uh, again, antidepressants and drugs like this, uh, there is very little difference between uh, the response of people to um, antidepressants and to uh, placebos. So if you just give people a sugar pill and tell them that it's going to make them um, feel better, a, a substantial portion of those people will feel better in response to that. In fact, there is... Um, there's a psychiatrist at Brown University, I quoted him in The Undiscovered Mind, who has recommended that given that <clears throat> all um, antidepressants now, all psychiatric drugs have some side effects. For example, the SSRIs, some of them have uh, a, uh, an effect on sexual libido. This guy, whose name is, um, is Brown, and he's actually at Brown University, has suggested <clears throat> that... Uh, placebos be the first treatment for people with mild to moderate depression because he says that many studies have shown that that um, placebo pills work even when people are told that it's a placebo that's what's so, so shocking example, yeah the, yeah the doctor can give somebody a pill and say this is an inert uh, pill there is not there are no uh, active uh, medications in this pill but studies have shown that if you take it, uh, there's a substantial chance that you will feel better. And, you know, and that's what actually occurs. So, uh, you know, I, I think that this is a tremendously interesting um, area for uh, researchers to study. There is a tremendous amount of uh, interest in this right now, particularly on how the placebo effect is uh, sort of modulated by the immune system, for example, so, um, I mean, I, I would love to write a, a, another book on the placebo effect alone at some point in the future. Yeah, please do, because it's an absolutely fascinating, it, it, and it, it completely is, is mind-boggling and, um, and mis deeply mysterious that even someone could actually be given a placebo and told that it's a placebo, and it still has that effect. And I think in the, in the pharmaceutical, um, when they actually try and um, do the clinical trials to show the effectiveness of new psychiatric drugs, they actually, I think, select out people who are called placebo responders, that they wash those people out of the, of the studies because they're trying to show that it has some more effect than the placebo effect, um, than the, just the, um, the placebo does. Um, and and was, of course, that distorts the... Uh, exactly. That, that provides a distorted picture of what the drug's effects will be in the general population. Exactly, and it's a, the distorted picture kind of holds sway for as long as the drug is very profitable, and then eventually things come out, and then they move on to a, a new drug, it seems. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you about this question of um, placebo a little bit more deeply, because it also affects like really serious medical conditions. I know that there are like placebo surgeries and different kinds of placebo 
um, treatments for for medical serious medical problems that have effectiveness as well. Is that is that true? Well, yeah. I mean, what's what's happened uh, what, a number of times uh, recently is that there is a treatment that uh, has been used, for example, for treating um, uh, heart disease, a, a surgical procedure, the insertion of a a stent into a uh, cardiac artery, something like that. And it's been, uh, you know, used very successfully for years and years. And there was a recent case, and I think it was involving a very common stent procedure, where somebody thought, well, you know something, let's, let's, um, let's carry out a, a, a controlled study of this and see how it holds up um, compared to placebo. And so they actually carried out a study in which people who received stents were compared to those who simply had a surgical incision made in their chest, but nothing was actually uh, inserted into it. And the people who just had the incision did as well afterwards as the people who had the stent inserted into their chest. And so this procedure was immediately discontinued because everybody realized that the success rate had been due entirely to uh, placebos. Now, I just have to tell you, I, I mentioned this in Undiscovered Mind, placebos work even on animals, on, on non-human uh, animals. Oh, you had no study. idea. That's, uh, that's incredible. Wow, <laughs> I had no idea about that. <laughs> well, there's a famous study, you know, there's something called the nocebo effect, which is the, um, it's the flip side of the, so the placebo effect is obviously a, uh, a positive effect. You get better because you think you're going to get better. The nocebo effect is when you get worse because you expect to get worse because of something that's, that's uh, happening to you. So there was this study done, I think, in the 1970s, and I think it was the University of Rochester, in which uh, the researchers gave this um, a solution that was very bitter to some rats that uh, contained, I think it was a uh, an immune suppressing drug that made them very susceptible to uh, various kinds of diseases, and so they sort of trained a population of of rats to associate this bitter taste with uh, with this illness that they would get by drinking this stuff. So then, w what they did was um, they gave just the bitter solution with no um, immune-suppressing drug in it to the rats, and more than half of the rats still got sick, and some even died as wow. a result of this nocebo effect. So their brains had somehow trained them to expect that they would become ill because of the, drinking this bitter solution, and as a result of that, they did become ill. Yeah, the, the so again, just... this just shows that this isn't some kind of totally psychological, psychosomatic, uh, psychosomatic effect. It's something that is very physiological and tangible. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible, and the, the implications are just so far-reaching. One of the things that it makes me think of is that the whole realm of alternative health and holistic healing, and of course, you know, the placebo effect is obviously a huge factor in that. The, the, the question is sort of, um, you know, what are the side effects? So if we have the placebo effect, 
is very effective with people, why not use treatments that are harmless or non-toxic rather than risky risky treatments or psychiatric drug treatments or surgical treatments, these kinds of things, um, just if, if there's no reason to have that risk there because the placebo effect is so is so powerful. But this is, I, I do hope that you continue to do research on this because it's an incredibly fascinating um, you know, area. And I, I just wanted to, to turn now to the whole question of, of genetics because you talk a lot about um, that in the undiscovered mind. And I know that your current uh, work is a lot about the, something called the neural code. And we're often told that, you know, the gene for schizophrenia or the gene for uh, bipolar disorder is right around the corner. And pretty soon we're going to be screening, screening, um, uh, you know, unborn children for whether they have these susceptibilities or they're going to get these diseases. And what do you, what's your view of all, of all that, the genetic well, side of things? <laughs> I, you know, I originally... Um, did a big article for Scientific American in the early 90s uh, on what's called behavioral genetics. So it's the attempt to find uh, specific genes underlying complex traits or disorders. So people were looking for genes for some of the major mental illnesses, schizophrenia, uh, manic depression, uh, also depression, uh, disorders such as alcoholism, um, drug addiction, and also some behavioral traits. And one of the most uh, controversial was um, homosexuality, but also impulsive behavior, you know, these sort of personality traits. And there was this wave of claims starting really in the late 80s when biotechnology was first offering some techniques that allowed researchers to search for specific genes associated with specific disorders. And there was this wave of claims of discoveries of specific genes for alcoholism, schizophrenia, manic depression, impulsive behavior, and male homosexuality. So I was, needless to say, I thought, you know, this is a very exciting trend. I started gathering material for a big article on it in Scientific American. And what I found was that in every one of these cases, you had a an initial paper that was announced with great fanfare in Nature or Science or some major journal, and then there would be all this other publicity. Uh, the New York Times was running a whole series of front-page articles on these findings. In every case, follow-up studies would fail to corroborate the initial finding. But you wouldn't read about those, about those failures to corroborate. And so there was this impression that we're making, we're explaining everything that we are, the good and the bad, in terms of these specific genes. And it led to all these uh, visions of designer babies and re-engineered humans. And it, and it was all based on a false premise that scientists are actually discovering the genes associated with all these complex traits and disorders. Now, that was in the early 90s. I wrote an article in Scientific American that, again, was enormously controversial. It was, it, I, you know, I, I took a lot of heat for this article because at the time, everybody was still basically just accepting all these claims for the genetic basis of complex traits. But that has really held up over the last decade. Now, these claims still are coming out, but again, still in every case, you never get the kind of corroboration that, that you need to, to be sure that the claims are correct. 
John, so all this talk about designer babies and you know the sort of eugenic future for humanity still are, are not based on real science. John, why do you think that there's such an enthusiasm for genetic explanations? And you mentioned eugenics, and it, for me it has a, a kind of a chilling kind of side to it of social Darwinism and even going back to the Nazis. But why is there so much enthusiasm for this in your view? Well, you know, that, that's, it's, it's complicated. First of all, as a science writer... I can tell you that you know, when you read something that says there is a single um, there is a single genetic mutation that's responsible for addiction to gambling, for example, my initial reaction uh, would be, "Wow, that's really cool. That's amazing." It's just kind of a, a pure gee whiz reaction. Um, I think politically things have gotten a lot more complicated. You know, so traditionally, as as you just said. Um, genetic explanations of uh, human behavior tend to be associated um, with the right, with the Nazis um, and conservatives in, in other countries. But the eugenics movement originally, back at the beginning of the, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, was uh, heavily populated with intellectual liberals who thought that eugenics really would, you know, was sort of the... Uh, the future of humanity and didn't associate it with, with totalitarianism. They saw it as, as, as potentially the, the liberation of humanity. Now, in, in, uh, over the last couple of decades, genetic explanations of um, uh, mental illness are seen as a way of absolving parents, for example, of responsibility for having created schizophrenic um, children through their bad Parenting. I think that's actually a, a, a very positive result of, uh, of some of this research. I mean, twin studies really do establish that there's a, a genetic basis for schizophrenia and manic depression and some of these other illnesses. Uh, when it comes to um, homosexuality, I think some uh, gay activists have embraced genetic explanations because uh, they don't like the idea that... that um, Homosexuality is just this lifestyle choice, uh, that it's something that, uh, that trivial. So the politics of genetics are much more complicated now than they used to be, and there are lots of reasons why these explanations are very attractive to all sorts of different groups. But what I keep coming back to is the science. Is the science there, and so far it isn't. John, you, uh, you mentioned the whole the twin studies thing, and I really want to kind of pin you down on this because a, like a little warning bell went off because I, I know that there, um, there are studies, um, identical twins don't have the same rates of schizophrenia or manic depression. So we know that it, it, if, since they have the same genes, it can't be caused by those genes. But we do know that there, is, there are some studies that show that there seem to be higher rates among identical twins um, for things like what get diagnosed as schizophrenia or bipolar. But I have kind of two questions to pose. One is, isn't it true that the um, the labels and diagnoses themselves, schizophrenia and bipolar or manic depression, are themselves kind of really fuzzy from a um, scientific standpoint? And secondly, I know that in, in your book, The Undiscovered Mind, you look more deeply at the twin studies, and they often don't quite hold up as much as they're claimed to be. So what, what do you make of the genetic role in what gets labeled or diagnosed as uh, mental illnesses? Yeah, I, you know, and um, 
in Undiscovered Mind, I looked, and actually in the article that I did for Scientific American back in uh, the early 80s, I looked very closely, particularly at twin studies done by a group at the University of uh, Minnesota, uh, which has been um, gathering identical twins, especially uh, those who were separated at birth and raised by different families for decades now. And they published some of these astonishing uh, claims, which makes it sound as though genes determine virtually everything that they are, everything that we are. And so uh, they not only have these sort of statistical arguments to back this up, but uh, stories about the Minnesota twin research almost invariably uh, mention some of these extraordinary coincidences that occur when twins separated at birth are uh, reunited, where you know, the, in, in one case you had these two guys uh, who had both been raised by different families in different states, but they both ended up as firemen. They both ended up as uh, they both ended up married to women with the same name. They both named their kids uh, with the same names. They had dogs that had the same names. They both liked Budweiser. You know, all this kind of crazy stuff. And this is just wonderful fodder again for uh, science writers. But the message to me is very creepy. I mean, it's just the worst kind of genetic determinism. It suggests that genes uh, don't only give us these sort of uh, general propensities for behavior, they, they determine our lives in every particular. Now, what I showed was that if you look at the twin studies of the Minnesota group more closely, you find that some of these twins who were separated from birth, separated at supposedly separated at birth, actually had contact throughout their lives. And some of them were, were, uh, had incentives for exaggerating these, uh, these strange coincidences. Some of them were getting movie deals. There was one example of twins who were separated at birth. One became a Nazi. One, they were both Jewish, but one was raised by a German family and became a Nazi, whereas the other one was a devout Jew, and then they got together and they got a movie deal out of this. And uh, so, you know, these sorts of stories, these, these kind of anecdotal stories, have led to a totally exaggerated picture of uh, the role of genes in our, our lives. The statistics of the Minnesota group have also been heavily weighted toward the genetic side of things in a way that other studies by other groups uh, don't show. Yeah, a couple, we've had a couple of times on the show, we've had uh, Robert Whitaker, whose book uh, Mad in America looks at a lot of this, and you know, a lot of the science just doesn't hold up, as you're, as you're pointing out. And of course, the folks who are not scientists or not science writers were kind of at the mercy of how the think about it. I mean, I, I know from my, my friends who have children that, you know, babies definitely seem to have some kind of intrinsic temperament. They definitely don't come into the world just a completely blank slate. But the question is, you know, if that temperament is biological or genetic, um, how does it express itself? Because someone may be sensitive, they may be artistic, they may have um, creative side to them, they may have a a sort of a vulnerability to them or an openness to them and whether or not that turns into something that's socially designed or socially defined as schizophrenia or expresses itself as uh, manic depression 
there's so many intermediary stages that go in um, between there. What do you what do you make of that kind of view of it? You know, I I've, I've got two kids. They both were born with their own unique temperaments. Uh, I you know, my wife and I I you know we have to believe that we have uh, an impact on them as they develop. Um, but there is this sort of core there. And I, I think that twin studies and other studies have demonstrated that there is uh, an innate uh, temperament that we're all born with. Uh, and that makes uh, each of us uh, an individual. I also believe that there is something called human nature, which is determined by genes that have been shaped over millions of years by evolution. But, uh, you know, the nature-nurture debate is so old, and it's, it, it's always been the same answer. There's this complex interaction between genes and the environment. The genetic determinists are really holding sway in science right now uh, for some of the reasons that I just uh, tried to articulate before. But um, environment is just as important as ever. Yeah, and there's also there's also the question of like prenatal environment, the way in which um, the actual um, you know gestation process can have environmental influences. And there would be people that would say that there are influences that go p- prior to birth as well. So um, it's a very complicated question, and it sort of raises. Well, let me before I move on to that, let me ask you this. Maybe one of the ways that, to understand this is that. Genetic determinism kind of sees that there's a blueprint, but isn't it true that that a lot of the more um, recent genetic theory is seeing genes as being able to be turned off and turned on by the environment? Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, it gives me a chance to to mention this weekly science show that I do on something called Blogging Heads TV. It's called Science Saturday. And I do it with uh, a, a great science writer, writes a lot for the New York Times, named um, George Johnson. And uh, the URL is bloggingheads.tv. It's a show that's um, mainly got these various pundits talking about politics and, and uh, culture. But George and I, for the past couple of months, have been doing a show on science. And uh, on the show that just aired last Saturday, we talk about how there has been this wave of papers recently showing how the old picture of how genes uh, are inscribed into uh, proteins has become incredibly more complicated. And people realize that the, uh, this apparently sort of linear process of stretches of uh, DNA being, being turned into uh, proteins and developing organism has has really fallen apart and the interactions of genes and the feedback mechanisms and the nonlinear processes are just immensely more complicated than anybody had thought and I believe that this explains why first of all some of these really simplistic genetic explanations of uh, human uh, behavior and various traits and disorders have uh, have failed. And also, I think it explains why, you know, for the past 15 years or so, there have been all these attempts to uh, use uh, genetic therapies for 
um, various diseases that are caused by a single mutation. Um, and none of those have worked. Genetic therapy has been a, uh, just a disaster so far. And I think it's probably because things are much more complicated than anybody had expected. So that's a real paradigm shift happening within genetics right now. Well, one of the things that keeps coming up, I mean, you mentioned the nature-nurture um, debate, but one of the things that seems to keep coming up is the confusion between what is the brain and what is the mind. And you you mentioned this sort of, um, this kind of gap that there's really not really much understanding of what consciousness really is and what the mind is, and that we know that there's correlate with biology and a correlate with chemicals and electricity happening in the brain, but there's something about mind that seems to defy these explanations, as you say in your book, Undiscovered uh, Mind. Let's let's kind of bring it into the larger philosophical context here and, oh, and, sure. and, and yeah, ask, ask, about, ask about that, because I'm not, I mean, I think it's a fascinating question, but it's sort of like the elephant in the room when we're talking about mental health or psychiatry or, or, or really everything about what it is to be human. Well, uh, you know, I had another Blogging Heads discussion about this recently with a, uh, a philosopher, an Australian philosopher named uh, David Chalmers. Now, he's responsible for coining the term the hard problem to describe uh, the, the problem of trying to explain the mind, a subjective experience. It's sometimes called qualia by uh, philosophers in physiological terms. So on the one side, you've got um, neurons and, and uh, brain uh, components like uh, the amygdala or the frontal cortex, these physical objects and physical processes. On the other side, you have uh, perception and uh, memory and emotion, these, these uh, subjective constituents on our, uh, of our mind. So the question, and this is an ancient question, goes back to the ancient Greeks, is how do you go from these physical components and processes to uh, these subjective phenomena? And this is sometimes called the explanatory gap, uh, the gap between the physical and, uh, and the mental. And Chalmers has suggested that uh, to bridge this gap, we, we might mean need a whole new way of framing uh, reality which incorporates the concept of information uh, as well as uh, physical entities. And um, to me, it's, uh, you know, I don't find this very persuasive. I actually have become more optimistic recently that the, uh, the explanatory gap can be bridged and the mind-body can be, the mind-body problem can be solved by something called the neural code. Now, this is a phrase that most people uh, haven't even heard of yet, and I'm doing my best to popularize it because I think the neural code is the single most important and significant problem in science today, and maybe ever. So, tell us about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so, the neural code is. I, one, the best way to think of it is kind of the, the software that runs on, uh, that makes your brain run. So um, uh, as far as neuroscientists can tell, information uh, in the brain is represented by these uh, electrical signals that are transmitted from one brain cell or neuron 
to the next. It's these little sort of uh, biochemical uh, packets with an electrical charge that jump from one, one cell um, to the other. And these are sort of analogous to the packets of electrons that run through um, digital computers. So the question is, what is uh, the analog in the brain of what you would call the machine code of a modern computer? What's the software? What's the internal language of the brain? that translates these uh, pulses into perception and memory and emotion and, and so forth. This is the neural code. And uh, if science, scientists can somehow crack the neural code, I, th I think they might have a way to solve, I think this might be the only possible way to solve some of these ancient uh, riddles like the mind-body problem, or the problem of free will. But you know, the, how do we get this sense of that we have of being sort of autonomous creatures uh, with choices in the world? When uh, what science is really telling us is that everything is physically determined by physical laws. When but, you get right down to the molecular level. But John, aren't it, you aren't you skeptical of comparisons between uh, computers and machines and um, the human brain and mind and consciousness? Because we're talking about a uh, level of complexity in the mind, which is just completely, vastly different than um, something which as essentially simple as a computer, which is just a, a large number of on and off switches firing at the extremely high, uh, high rate. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I, I guess because I've been, I've been such a um, debunker and critic of science for so long, as a change of pace, I like to be positive every now and then. <laughs> right, right. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I've tried to be um, as positive as I can be uh, about the neural code, while also uh, pointing out how hideously complex it is. I think you're quite right. It's, it's the most, it, it, first of all, it's, it's not only the most important problem, it's also the most complex problem that scientists have ever solved, tried to solve. I mean, it makes particle physics look, look like a child's game. Uh, I wrote an article for Discover Magazine a few years ago in which I tried to lay out some of the various approaches for solving the neural code. And it's in what, um, what philosophers might call a pre-paradigm stage right now. Uh, there is no convergence toward a single solution. There are lots and lots of competing possible solutions for the neural code. And it may be, and I think it's quite probable, that each that there is no universal uh, neural code, in the same sense that there is a universal genetic code, more or less, that all organisms share, not only all humans, but all organisms. Because we know so that the, uh, the brain is extremely plastic, and unlike DNA, you know, the neurons are shaping themselves and changing and dying and creating and growing and making new pathways, and that's very different than a kind of a, uh, basically a kind of a straightforward DNA strand. That's right. In some sense, the neural code of each of us uh, must be unique, must be shaped by our unique experiences and our unique uh, physiology. And not only that, but, but uh, our neural code changes constantly in response to new experiences. 
And so uh, neuroscientists are chasing a moving target. So this is, and this is, um, go, go ahead, go ahead. Well, on the other hand, there have been some tremendous practical advances. I mean, you've probably read about these experiments involving both um, monkeys and humans in which they have brain, uh, they have chips implanted in their brain that can detect neural signals that can be used to uh, move a cursor on a computer or control a robotic arm. Yeah, I have, so, I have, uh, I have read about those stu studies, and they, they frighten me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. you should be frightened mm. because the, the major sponsor of this ro research right now is the Pentagon. That's a yeah. really disturbing aspect of this yeah. research. The Pentagon clearly has an interest in, in crazy sci-fi possibilities like bionic soldiers. In fact, I've been told by people at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency that that's precisely what they're interested in. Well, when I'm feeling, uh, in, a, when I'm feeling in a more courageous uh, mood, I want to get you back on the show and talk specifically about that whole question of mind control, because I know you've written a little bit about that, and it's certainly a really... It's a very disturbing but also very important area to, to look at and, and to understand. And, and this is, there's just so much to talk about, John. We, just, we we're kind of not have a lot of time, but I wanted to see if I could get to just take a few minutes on your work on psychedelics, um, hallucinogens, oh, yeah. and, and especially maybe one of the, because I mean, I've taken um, psychedelics, and one of the things that um, comes both in a psychedelic experience and also sometimes just in ordinary reality and in spiritual practice that I've done is this sense of, you know, the mind really is everywhere and everything, and consciousness is really that something that's intrinsic to all of existence. It's not actually existing inside of our minds, of, of our brains, or inside of our bodies. Um, so tell us a little bit about your thoughts about psychedelics and how that sort of fits into all these other areas of research that you're doing. Sure. Well, you know, I'm, I'm 53 years old, so I sort of grew up in, uh, I'm kind of uh, tail end of the 60s, person. When I grew up, there was tremendous interest in uh, psychedelics, and uh, I um, dabbled in them myself and also read lots of uh, books that tried to uh, draw analogies between psychedelic experiences and the sorts of experiences that you get uh, in mystical traditions such as Buddhism and Hinduism. And I sort of put all that on the back burner of my life until fairly recently, and then I got back into it uh, when I was doing research for my book, Rational Mysticism, which was an attempt to understand mystical experiences uh, in scientific terms. And it, it turns out that over the last 10 or 15 years, there has been this um, revival of legitimate scientific interest and psychedelics. So, you know, there, there was this original wave of enthusiasm for psychedelics, of, of scientific enthusiasm for them in the 50s and 60s as a, as a result of the discovery of uh, LSD and uh, psilocybin and some of these other drugs. But then that all um, collapsed because of uh, Timothy Leary and his shenanigans and, and this wave of public uh, revulsion over the... Uh, the, the popular use of psychedelics by young people. And, but it's been quietly coming back. In fact, uh, at Harvard University, there's a, there's a young psychiatrist named John Halpern who is carrying out a study now of the uh, potential of psilocybin for relieving the effects of anxiety in terminal cancer patients. 
There are studies of psychedelics going on at other universities all around the country. And I think this is, um, I, I think it's, it's a wonderful thing because these substances, while they definitely have the potential to be abused, they can tell us a lot about how our brains work. And I think they could also have uh, great therapeutic potential. So I wrote about this all in, um, in Rational Mysticism, and uh, I'm continuing to track it with great interest. So you remain, um, I guess you describe yourself as an agnostic, but have your experiences with psychedelics and your sort of looking at these questions given you any sort of larger answers about what is the relationship of mind to nature and is there something called God and what sort of we're doing in this, uh, well, here's in this what reality? what psychedelics have done for me. Uh, you know, I think the great danger with psychedelics is that they, you know, they kind of amplify everything in your brain, the negative and uh, the positive, and they can easily lead to all sorts of uh, delusional um, experiences and then uh, beliefs. And I think they can also lead you to become, you know, your psychedelic experiences can be so sort of glittery and extraordinary that when you come back down to ordinary reality, it looks sort of humdrum. Now, it should work at its best. It does work in the opposite way. Uh, for me, the best um, trips that I've had, they sort of pull the veil off things, and I, I realize what a miracle it is to be alive. So I mm. am an agnostic, but um, I guess because I haven't found any explanation of reality, neither theological nor scientific, that makes any sense to me. But... Um, the psychedelic vision has helped me realize that it is just incredible, astonishing that we're here at all. Existence is uh, infinitely improbable and, uh, in that sense, a miracle. And that actually meshes with what science tells me uh, about existence. I think science is, has uh, shown that the, uh, the creation of the universe and uh, the origin of life on Earth were incredibly improbable events. There's no reason for us to be here, and yet here we are. Wow, that's really, that's really inspiring. We are just about out of time. I want to make sure that people have um, information about your books and your, um, your blogging show and um, your website. So can you just give, us to this, give those to us again? Sure. Well, you can... You can uh, get links to all of my, actually, uh, Amazon uh, URLs for all my books and uh, links to a bunch of the articles that I've mentioned in our discussion and uh, Blogging Heads TV. If you just go to my personal website, which is johnhorgan.org. John Horgan, thank you very much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Okay, thank you, Will. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to an interview with John Horgan. John is a science journalist and director of the Center for Science Writings at uh, the Stevens Institute for Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. He's a former senior writer at Scientific American. He's also written for Discover Magazine and the New York Times. You can find out more information about John and his work, including his books, The Undiscovered Mind, How the Human Brain Defies Replication, Medication, and Explanation, 
rational mysticism and the end of science by going to John's website, which is johnhorgan.org. That's about all the time we have this week on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. 